Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theatre masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, today I have a really interesting, fascinating, talented guest, and that is Kevin McGeehan. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Margo. How are you? Great. It's so nice to meet you. I Same. really admire your work a lot. Um, and I know uh, you were an improv, but let's start a little further back. I'm a therapist, so I like to go way back. You know, your your memories in the womb when you were rebirthing yourself, uh, where, you, where you grew up and what kind of family you grew up in. In a nutshell, I grew up in Florida, born in Georgia, lived there the first six years, moved to Florida, and we stayed in the same house for 30 years. My parents got divorced when I was 10 years old, and I lived with my mother, and it was a single mother and her only son. Uh, that was our dynamic for most of my life until she passed away at 35, when I was 35. And uh, yeah, that's a nutshell. And I can go and uh, dig in deeper to some of those things. And your mother had cancer, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah, my mom did too. Um, yeah. can I, where in Florida did you live? Jacksonville. Okay, up north, all right. Yeah. That's kind of, uh, is that Tom Petty area or was he Tallahassee? I can't he's, remember. He's Gainesville. Gainesville, okay. He's Gainesville, where I went to college. So yeah, Tom Petty is definitely, they claim him there as well as, when I was going to college there, River Phoenix was also living there and he was doing, and I would go see him in his band all the time. And it was just, yeah. How cool. Now, How were, cool. You, were you interested in the arts at all as a kid, as a teenager, theater? Or what it mostly just stemmed, I stemmed out of awkward, solitary kid who had one best friend growing up and we made each other laugh and love stand up and love comedy. So it just became one of those things that I just loved because of the circumstances. And from there, when I went to college, I saw a, there's a thing called for A&E called the Second City 149th and a half special. And it was basically, they just filmed a bunch of the sketches and put it on A&E. And I saw that and had an amazing, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I want to do. And that was a big moment for me seeing that. That's wonderful. It's like an epiphany. All of a sudden, wow, what is this? Yeah. I could do, and did you think to yourself, I can do that? It's been a long time, but I'm going to say based on my bravado at the time, yes. Okay. So yes. how how long did you stay in Florida before you traveled to, you went to Second City, Chicago, right? Correct. So once I graduated college, I moved directly to Chicago with $1,000 and a dream, which in retrospect was just a suicide mission, but I ended up pulling it off because... I ended up getting hired for Second City pretty soon after in the box office. And then from there, made my way up and just started keep and kept going up the ladder and became an actor there, became a teacher there. And it just became what I did for two decades of my life. 
Wow. And Cheryl Sloan was there when you were there and mm -hmm. Joyce, Joyce Sloan was there when you were there. Yep. I have uh, very funny memories of her. Here's a quick little story about her that I love. Yes. I had a, I had a nice rapport with Joyce Sloan. Joyce Sloan was the producer emeritus of the Chicago second city when I was there, but she was the main producer for a long time. And she was a mother figure to many people that came through the doors of second city. There was a joke that was made at her funeral where uh, it was said that whenever you got good news in your life, there were two women you called, your mother and Joyce, and not necessarily in that order. And that became her relationship with everyone. And I was one of the fortunate ones that had a nice rapport with her. One day, Bonnie Hunt was coming to visit her. And I got really excited because in the late 90s, I loved Bonnie Hunt. And I had a huge crush on her. And I was so excited. And I said to Joyce, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to meet Bonnie Hunt, to which Joyce playfully responds, oh, she's not coming to see you. She's coming to see me. You will not be meeting her. And it was a funny little rapport. So then it became my goal to meet Bonnie Hunt in spite of Joyce. But I did say to Joyce before Bonnie arrived, I said, are you trying to keep her from me? Because you're afraid that if she meets me, she will fall in love with me and not pay attention to you. And she goes, yeah, that's what I'm worried about. <laughs> so a few, uh, some few minutes pass, and then Bonnie shows up. Joyce happens to be in the lobby when she does. So she greets her and takes her back to the office without her having to come to the box office where I am. As she is walking away, Joyce turns to me and does like a, a nanny nanny boo-boo sticking out her tongue. Like, ha-ha, I got her. You're never going to meet her. <laughs> so at this point, I go back to... Uh, the box office. And I, once again, full of bravado at 27 years old. And I just decided I'm going to go back there. And I walked back in the back hallway past Joyce's office. One of those where I'm walking to the bathroom. And then I happen to look in, oh, look, there's people in there. So I'll say hi. So I do. And I come in and say, oh, hi, Joyce. I didn't know you had a guest. Uh, I'm, I'm Kevin. And she goes, hi, I'm Bonnie. And uh, then because I love to call things out, I said, I really wanted to meet you, but Joyce refused to let me meet you. But I was able to, uh, I was able to spite her, right? Yeah. And then Joyce pipes up. He also said that you would fall in love with him when you met him. Did that happen? To which now Bonnie Hunt is incredibly embarrassed. Now, what is happening? She has no idea. This is coming out of left field. And she goes, uh, no, I'm kind of fond of my husband. I'm mortified, embarrassed at this point. Right, right. And I say, okay, I'm probably just going to go. And she goes, well, nice meeting you, Steve. And then, <laughs> then Joyce goes, yeah, good to see you, Steve. See you later, Steve. And then I left. And it was one of those beautiful moments that I loved conceding the loss because it was such a cool moment that she did because she won. Of me trying to compete with Joyce, I lost. Oh, that's a great story. From everything I've heard, she was just an incredible woman and really the heart of Second City for so many years. Just a beautiful yes. soul. So um, you're at the box office. Were you taking classes while you were at the box office? I was ensconced in improv. I was at uh, what was then Improv Olympic, now I.O. Right. I was taking classes there on teams there. I was taking classes at Second City concurrently. So I was just, all I wanted to do was this, and I just made it my goal to learn it and get as good as it good at it as possible and after a while i got eventually noticed enough 
yeah, working there, a friend of mine said, the reason I got a job in the box office, uh, a friend of mine worked there and he said, you know, daytime funny can be quite a lucrative funny there. Meaning that the producers are going to see you all the time and get, yeah. Yeah. get to know you. However, there is that unfortunate stigma that gets attached to you're in the box office. So it's hard to shake that, uh, that mantle. So I found myself and a few others found our way out and transcended box office and then got hired as actors as we had hoped. That's, I know I've, I've talked to a lot of people who started either in the box office or uh, there's some quite famous people that actually started in the box office, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, or they were servers or, you know, in the kitchen. Uh, Jordan Peele, uh, my favorite was, uh, he was around when I was, and he was one of the hosts that would seat people in the house. And I love the fact that he has become a director that is actually a genre in and of himself. It's fascinating to watch his ascension. It's wonderful. From, yeah. So you were taking classes and you're performing and we with comedy sports as well. I never did that one. Never did comedy sports. So yeah. meanwhile, you're getting really proficient and you're asked to teach. Is that correct? Yes, we are skipping uh, many steps, but yes, that is oh, the well, next on the timeline. No, 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 let's go oh, back. Oh, no, no. no. I was... <laughs> oh, that was me being uh, that was me being more cheeky than I had actually things I needed to say. Uh, but yeah, after a while, it was I started touring for the touring company. I did that for uh, just shy of four years, maybe. And then when I ended that, then I moved over to teaching. And then that and then a couple of years later, they had those cruise ships. The cruise ships yes. came out that a lucrative deal that they made. And I was the first cast that was sent to the cruise ships when they didn't know what the job was yet. So it was basically an amazing experience of we only had nine hours of work a week. And we lived in what I called prison with kick-ass amenities of just living on this moving building that would go to different places. And that's all you lived. And there was this weird thing that I loved, which um, I called uh, a, a temporary famousness because on Sunday, new passengers would get on and no one would know who you were. Right. By Wednesday, when you do the show in the thousand seat theater and many of the population of the ship has now seen you, you now have a level of fame. And when you have red hair and resemble Chuck Norris, you stand out on a ship. So for Wednesday to Sunday morning, you are very well known. And then Sunday afternoon, it resets and you go back to anonymity. <laughs> yeah, it was a cool it was a cool experience to kind of dip my toe into what that is like to be so recognizable in a small environment. Right. Yeah, it's kind of the big fish thing a little bit. Uh, yeah. But you were in a you were in a big pond, that's for sure. A big mm -hmm. ship. Now, do you remember some of the people that were in that touring company with you? Yes. Uh the first touring company I was in was myself, Bridget Kloss, Seamus McCarthy, Brian Boland, uh, Molly Kavanaugh, and another. This slipped my mind. Uh but I replaced. I replaced Jason Sudeikis on the touring company that I was on. He was the, and it's been a, a he and I have a nice little bond because of that. And we've always had a little shorthand because there is that, that transition that we had. How fabulous. Yeah. I was just watching Portlandia last night and uh, he was great in Portlandia. He was a, a cult leader. Uh, okay. 
he was cult leader of a uh organic chicken farm uh, anyway he's just brilliant so let's go back a bit to when you were studying did you have some teachers that really impacted you i i'm not sure how old you are so i'm not going to ask you unless you want to tell me what what years were you there and who was who were some of the teachers that really influenced you when you first started uh i am 52 years old and i started there in 1997 um a month before Chris Farley died. And it was, the reason I even bring that up is that it was the first Chris, Second City Christmas party I got to go to and I was very excited about this. And there was also the, oh my gosh, Chris Farley's here. But it was part of the sequence of events that night that led him to his ultimate demise. But that was one of the stops that night. Uh, so 97, and then I left there in 2006 and moved out here-ish. Um, who were some of the people? Uh, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, uh, all the uh, UCB people, the Upright Citizen Brigade, had not moved to New York yet to start their shows. They were still oh, on wow. touring company and were just doing. They were they were definitely Chicago famous at the time. Um, so seeing them, Scott Adsit became a um, hero very quickly and someone yeah. to emulate. Uh, yeah, it was Jackie and they, Brer they were, and I are contemporaries. Were, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Who did you no, just say? Uh, Jack McBrayer and I are contemporaries. We started in classes together and remained friends from there. And so Amy Poehler and Tina Fey were classmates. Yes, but they were like a generation ahead of me uh -huh. or two ahead of me. Uh, so they were already on the stages. By the time I started working there, it was the, it was Tina's last show was when I started working there, but I saw all of the shows that she did. And one of the things she said to me one time, I will never forget because when I first started at the theater, I was so bright eyed and bushy tailed that I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could from everyone. But the question I would ask anyone who had one of the acting jobs there, I would ask them, what was your ascension? What did, how did you get to where you are? And one day, uh, Tina had come back from her first year of SNL to visit, and she was sitting in what used to be this thing called the war room, which was just this room with a couch that people could hang out in. And she was sitting in there by herself, and I walked in, and I took the opportunity just to ask her, uh, not about SNL, but about her time at Second City. And the thing I really wanted to know was, uh, how did it feel when you got main stage? Because the thing with her, she got main stage and she was the person that broke the, the ceiling of it used to be four men, two women. But when she got hired, it became the norm from that part, that point forward. It's three and three. Yes. So yes. she's the first uh, one to break through that. So I asked her, how do you feel about it? And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but essentially what she told me was she was so excited when she got it. And it was just this amazing feeling of fulfilling a goal. But then the next day she woke up in a panic because the first words in her head were, now what? And that has always stuck with me, especially watching her ascension through the comedy world to making herself, uh, she's on the cusp of becoming a legend yes, uh, in her yes. life. But to, but to know that someone who has achieved that still has the same insecure fears yes. that we all do. So that's always been a comfort for me, that moment with her in the war room. Oh, that's a great story. That's wonderful. So let's get to some of the faculty that were there. Was Dell still there when you started? Dell was still oh, yeah, at I.O. I, I took oh. one class 
with him and he died maybe a year after that. Uh, but my Del Close experience was yes. I took the level five with him and it was at the point in his life where he was kind of done teaching, but he loved smoking cigarettes and just kind of talking for a majority of the class and recounting stories as opposed to us getting up on stage, which was fine. However, one day we he was teaching the Armando form, the Armando form of just uh-huh. uh, the monologist and improvisers behind. Yes. And I was the monologist. And I, this is like class number two. And I went up there and I started telling stories that were honest. And at one point I talked about uh, a very real thing I experienced uh, that was funny and it made a nice scene afterwards. After we were done, Del Close, who rarely gave any compliments in this class, went crazy over how well I did and how that's how you do it. That's how you go on stage and you tell a story about yourself and such. Because that was such an amazing moment, for whatever reason, in my head, I decided I'm never going back. It will never get better than this. Yeah. And that's just the height of my Del Close experience. I'm done. So I missed the last six classes. And oh, I just. Or you stopped the classes. I stopped. I stopped going. Uh, yeah, it was. I may have uh, I may have romanticized that memory. It may have been farther in, but I remember that being a thing where it's never going to get better than this. I'm done with this class. And then however long was left, I did not go. That's hysterical. That yeah. is hysterical. Because, of course, I've talked to a lot of people about Dell experiences, and they weren't that um, complimentary, shall we say. Exactly, uh, which is why I didn't want to have that moment ruined by the inevitability of hearing something completely on the opposite end of that spectrum. Oh my gosh. So, so how about some of the other teachers you had? Was Michael Gelman there when you were a student at second? He was, he was there, but he was never my teacher. So I only knew him as a peer in the faculty. Yeah. Uh, so I knew him as Michael Gelman coming up, but then once I joined faculty, uh, but Mick Napier was, if I was to name ah. one name that was the one that really got me was Mick Napier. Yeah. And I don't think I would have been hired without I think he was the final linchpin because he took a liking to me. And I think he was the one who kind of pushed at the end for me to eventually get hired. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, Here's my quick mix story that I love so much because it changed my life. So um, after Second City, uh, one night in Chicago, uh, we all went across the street to the bar that everybody goes to right after. It used to be called The Last Act. Now it's called Corcoran's. Uh, So we went to The Last Act. And while we were there, we were sitting in one of the booths and Mick is holding court uh, to a number of improv people that are just hanging on every one of his words. At one point, another person walks up to the table and they dominate the conversation. They completely take it over and becomes lamentations about what happened to them today and all these uh, just series of events in their lives and such, but they monopolize the conversation to which Mick Napier, who can have a saltiness to him, leaned forward and said, you know, just because it happened to you doesn't make it interesting to anybody else. (laughs) And as much as that was just like a a shot in a solar plexus to this person, uh, for me, it was a, it became a thing that guided me once I moved into storytelling, because it was just because it happened to me, doesn't mean it's interesting to anybody else, to which I added the addendum, 
find a way to tell it so that it is. And that's been a guiding force for me as I write and as I do everything of just what is a way this is going to be interesting to strangers and not just a self-serving masturbatory uh, bit of typing that I show people. Yes, I love that. So um, uh, I have a dog in the background. She's she's Great. saying something. Um, so anybody else stand out as, a, as an instructor when you were still taking classes before you were teaching? Uh Anne Lamott was another one that was influential for me because I also got her at the perfect time, which was she and Kelly Leonard, the producer at the time, had just gotten married and had no children. So when she was teaching and doing classes, she would tell her producer husband, oh, this guy's great. This woman's great. So she would pass that on. And then because they didn't have children, he would come see her shows. So therefore... We were put in front of his eyes earlier because she was our teacher. Like Jack McBrayer and I were in the same class. And I think that Uh also Uh helped like get him there. So that's really cool. So now were you, did you do a lot of reading? Did you, uh, when you were starting out, were you reading some of the books or did you just take classes or what kind of classes? But I also, I had the amazing good fortune of, uh, I'm does the name TJ Jagodowski ring a bell? Of course. Excellent. Great. So TJ and I were roommates for three years, um, a year and a half together. Both of us met women that we thought we were going to be with forever. And when those failed miserably a year later, we both moved in together for another year and a half. <laughs> but one of the things that I absolutely loved was that he had a thing, which was white dudes are a dime a dozen. So we have to find ways to get more skills, to be able to be market ourselves differently if we want to be hired at this theater. So we just, there's a book called the Dictionary of Cultural Literacy, which is just this big book in here uh, that is marked into different categories. So the Bible, American history, world history, idioms. So it had science. So it has all these things so you can flip through it and then it'll just have like a dictionary, uh, all the different categories within it. Point being, TJ and I played a game where we would sit around our living room and would flip through the book and say, stop and open it up and tell me everything you know about the Gettysburg Address. So then it became the game of how much do we know about things and can so we can learn to reference so many different things Ah, and have just a little bit of knowledge of everything. It's wonderful. Oh, that's a wonderful game. I love it. Me too, because both of us were incredibly willing to do it. And he was so good from the beginning. He got amazing, but he was never, he never stumbled. He was always good out of the gate. So it was, it was wonderful to work with him the same way when you're trying to get in shape in the gym, you're lifting with people who are stronger than you. So it just makes you step up. And I always attribute that to me getting good is having someone in my proximity who was amazing. That's right. I, I interviewed his wife a few months ago and yeah. she's charming, wonderful. And you're building that muscle, that comedy muscle and yep. that improv muscle. And improv not always is comedy. Uh, no. I've learned a lot. Yeah, it's just reaction. It's a legitimate, honest reaction to something. Uh, it gets caught in a lot of times with the, how clever can I be with my wording, my references and such. Uh, which all has is wonderful, but when it 
like to keep the to keep it going over years, you really have to be able to tap into listening and responding emotionally to something. Yeah. And having some moments of pausing or yeah. silence. I love that. I love starting scenes where we're just very quiet. Nothing's yeah. being said. And that's how TJ and Dave often start their their shows, mm -hmm. don't they? Just walking around. Yeah, yeah. So um so you enjoy teaching. Did you take any sketch writing classes or things like that? We never did. No, I just had to learn on the job. Okay. So where did the interest in writing come in? I've always enjoyed writing, and that was one of the things that I loved growing up, but I wasn't doing it so consistently. When I got to Second City, I started writing sketches because that was the job. But then I also, when I was touring, I would write these stories out of what happened on the road. And then I was given full access to the copier because this is late nineties when, yeah, I would just run off all my stories. I'd make like 25 copies and I would just hand them out around the theater and then they would just be passed around. But that is kind of when the interest in telling stories started was that. And with your skills as an actor, your delivery of a story, your ability to get into the emotions of a story are just brilliant. You've you've won some awards, haven't you? Won some moth awards? Or you've been uh, yes, yeah. Uh, I am. I'm a nine-time moth winner and the 2019 New York Moth Grand Slam champion. Wow! I love that title. Yeah, yeah. I do too. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, so improv kind of jumping ahead improv to me is now a skill set that I love having just as a human being, because communicating with people is so much easier with this skill set that's been ingrained in my head over two plus decades that listening to someone and responding to exactly what they say, as opposed to waiting to talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was there a specific story when you won the Grand Slam? Yes. Uh, what the story I told or just something about that night? Both. We got plenty of time. Great. Uh, the story I told was one that I find it so fascinating when events of my life eventually become something that strangers really enjoy listening to because it was about a time when I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan with my then girlfriend as she got her PhD. So I moved to a college town where I didn't know anyone. And I really missed having friends. It was weird to be an adult in a new place, having to make friends and start completely over. And, but I made friends with this uh, guy across the street and we all became couples friends, his wife, my girlfriend, like we all would go hang out together. And the crux of the story is that I really wanted a new friend and this guy fit the bill except for one thing, which was that he would hug me constantly. And it was a weird thing because no one else in the group hugged. It was always <laughs> he and I, he'd initiate it and it would last like a second too long. And at first, I found it incredibly funny, and I started doing tactics to see if I could get him to not hug me, uh, like the handshake, and he would just slap it all the way and hug me, or I try a pivot 
and he would hug me from the side. And there was one time where I was on the phone and I gave him a, I'm on the phone, give me a minute finger. And he waited patiently. And when I was done, hugged me. <laughs> Went on for months until we eventually have, that culminates in me being in um, a movie theater where the four of us were all going out and they showed up late. And as I am standing up to let his wife pass me in the row, he just hugs me really hard from the side. I'm thrown off balance. I can feel the heat of his breath on my neck and like the graze of a lip on my ear. And then I am just so, I feel so violated. And I just, uh, I'm not proud of how I responded, but I just, uh, can I curse on this? Yeah, of course you can say whatever you want. Yeah. Great. So as I'm being hugged, I have this emotional response where I just turn them and say, fuck off me. <laughs> and then it immediately gets very uncomfortable. And then we... Uh, sit down, and then for an hour and 54 minutes, we all awkwardly watch uh, Leatherheads. And <laughs> afterwards, he and I talk about it because we have to discuss this because it was a pretty egregious moment that we have to deal with. And as we're standing in his driveway, uh, I, <laughs> this is my favorite line from it, he makes it abundantly clear that this is not a homosexual advance, to which I told him, I did not think it was, nor would I care if it were. And even if it was, he was going about it all wrong. So once I gave him the over, uh, like I, yeah, he finally got it. He understood where I was coming from. And then he showed me vulnerability when he said he has trouble making male friends as an adult. And he was just so excited to have a new friend. And the overzealous hugging was just him being so excited about this and I feel bad and then I apologize and I say I'm really glad we're friends I really like you and as these two men are standing in this driveway reconciled and communicating at a whole other level there was nothing else we could do in that moment but hug and this time different from all the others is that this time was mutual so that's the story I told. Wow. And it's it's a real fun story where it's very funny all the way through, but it's just, it all goes back to, we all, it's hard to make friends as an adult. So that's the theme of the story. Yeah. So I love this story and I told it that night for the Grand Slam Championship. Flew to New York. Uh, my girlfriend and I had gone to New York the year before and just, hey, let's go to a moth and I'll throw my name in. And I ended up winning that night and she ended up coming in second. So we were both thrilled at this. So then the next year we flew back for the championship. And the other thing, here's the story uh, from it that really stands out to me. I have an uncle who is only uh, six years older than me. So it's more, uh, yeah, it's more cousin or brother than it is uncle nephew, just age wise. And I told him that I was doing this and he could tell the excitement in my voice. And so unbeknownst to me, and he told me later, oh, your aunt and I are going to come there and watch it. We're going to fly to New York so we can come see you perform in this big thing. And I was so touched and so thrilled because he had not ever seen me perform live before. This would be the first time he got to see it. So he's got a lot of, uh, he's got a disposable income. So he bought a table right up front. Uh, so he is directly in front of the stage with my aunt and my then girlfriend. 
And I go up on stage and I tell this in front of 700 people and it goes quite well. And there are sometimes explosions of laughter where there's actually, you can feel the sound wave coming at you. It was just a magnificent night. Yeah. So then when I say my final line and it gets a big laugh and applause, as I'm walking back to the table where my uncle is, there's, some, there's a thing about him that I love, which is when he's really laughing, he also has red hair, but he gets real red faced and he bounces as he laughs. And as I walked back, I could see the red face and the bounce as he was just so thrilled. And he put his hand up to give me a high five. And it was the look on his face of pride of a man that I'd always tried to convince what I'm doing has merit. Yeah. Now yeah. he got to see in person. And that was a great moment for me. I bet it was. You know, the story of the hug, uh, I know it has a different title, but... It's funny, but it also brought tears to my eyes as you shared it. And that's, I think, the power of storytelling is that we access, the listener accesses different emotions throughout. And that just makes such a great story. What an art form it is. When it's done well, it's a beautiful magic trick. Because the same thing with improv, that I feel the same thing. If improv is done well, it looks like you've just seen magic in front of you. When it's bad... Ugh, I'd rather be anywhere else. Right. Uh, same with storytelling, because one of the biggest things with it that I think people have a difficulty grasping at times is that it's not just about the events that happened. It is about how you were affected or changed by the events that happened. Yes. Everybody's got everybody's got crazy stuff that happened to them, but it's got to have something else to it. Otherwise, myself as a stranger, I'm not going to care which is why drunk stories always suck is because it's more of like, Hey, look how I acted when I was altered. And that has really no direction, but for the teller, it's fantastic because it's you and people love talking about themselves. We all do. Yes. But how do you translate that over to the universality of human experience, which right. is, and we can seamlessly transition to this because, uh, I became fascinated with the neuroscience behind storytelling and what that actually does to our brains as we are hearing stories and why we are taken by some and bored by others. And the biggest thing is, can you find a universal emotion or theme that everybody gets on some level? Like for you, I'm going to speculate here and just kind of make some conjecture in that that affected you. When, uh, as I saw you be affected and the moment you got affected was when he confessed to me that he also has trouble making friends as an adult. And he was just so happy to have a new friend that right there is specific to myself and him in that moment. However, who doesn't want friends? And it's sometimes it's scary to put yourself out there with someone new. So it's that thing where you now are listening to something from my life, but your mind is giving you connections to your own life and bringing up stories and moments from your own life because your brain is looking for any sort of pattern. Our brains crave narrative. We crave patterns and we crave loops being tied up. And if you can show all of those things, the brain will be completely entranced by what you're saying. That's awesome. That is yeah. awesome. That is, yeah. 
uh, tell me a little bit more about it because you you have a what do you call your um, do you have a company that you call neuroscience of storytelling? Um, yes, for two years that was uh, a thing I did, but it has since dissolved because the relation my partner within it uh, she and I had a dissolution of our relationship, so that was one of the byproducts of that. Is we ended that. However, each of us got a brand new skill set from the other out of that experience because she became a much better storyteller and I started to understand so many more things about the brain and why we're reacting the way we do to certain stories. And that has been the thing that has helped me the most. Can you speak a little bit? Can you speak a little bit about the brain? We don't have to get too scientific, but I mean, there are aspects of the brain that make connections that respond. Um, I was reading recently how in the old part of our brain, when we feel rejected, we can and we feel hurt, we can actually feel physical pain because we're evolving uh, back in the day. If we were rejected from our group outside the cave, if you will, then our lives could be in danger because we don't have that group to keep us safe anymore. And that same part of the brain gets triggered so we can feel hurt feelings emotionally, but we can also feel physical pain. So elucidate a little bit more on some of those things. The thing I find so very fascinating, and this unlocked a lot for me, which is our brains, its primary function is to survive. And our brains are doing everything all the time to make sure that we are surviving. And as we listen to stories, we are subconsciously taking in information that will help us survive. It doesn't have to be life or death. However, if you hear a story, I have a story about uh, a time where I discovered that a a girlfriend long time ago had had uh, an affair an affair during our relationship. And I found out after we had broken up and then I decided I was going to reach out to the guy and ask him to meet with me. So we did, and we discussed everything. And when I walked away from this, actually, when I first met the man, he was nervous, but I said to put him at ease, I said, please don't be nervous because I sincerely expect this will go well. And that put him at ease. And then from that point, we got to talk. And without going into too much detail, he gave me his side of the story, which gave me empathy for him in that he also lost a lot in that whole situation. So my point of this, when I started telling this, the brain is now looking for survival in that if someone is listening to that and they have at a moment in their life where a someone cheats on them and they may be able to meet this other person. They now have a frame of reference because they have heard this story. So now they can look at it as, would I do the same thing as this dude or would I do something else? So it allows us to learn from others situations that we will be in that are similar in our lives. And that was a huge unlock for me because at first, when I first started telling stories, it was the big events. Of how like here's the here's when I was on a cruise ship that was hit by a 70-foot wave, like all these big things, and then you run out of those, and then it's now what? But then it becomes just about everyday things that you deal with. And from there, if you can make that 
if you could tap into your own emotions of what you were dealing with with something, I got a monologuing, uh, then from there, you can start to just have a universality to your stories. That's all right. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. And, and you mentioned the word patterns. And of course, in improv, we learn patterns are so important. Yes. Storytelling, the patterns are also very important. One of the things I love doing is establishing something at the very beginning that seems completely innocuous. Maybe it's surrounded by a joke, but it's some sort of line that I already know I'm going to be using as my last line or some sort of summation line. So establishing that at the beginning, somewhere in the middle or towards the final third, just doing another hint just to keep that ball in the air of this thing that was mentioned earlier. So then when it comes back at the end, it packs a wallop. Right, right. And the thing with that is I always try to work backwards. So uh, there's a storyteller, an author that I read that I forgot everything in his book except this one thing that changed the way I looked at it, which was uh, a guy named Matthew Dix. And what he said was every, every story, no matter movie, book, television, spoken word, every story is about a five-second moment in time. And everything else in that story is to serve that moment and that moment only. And that's the moment when you have transition, when you change. And I tell this story about my mother's death and I lived with her for her final five months. And in that time period, because we knew what her fate was going to be, we made the conscious decision that we were going to lean into it and throw this big party for her. Now, this was a huge endeavor and we invited so many people and it was, uh, it was expensive. And like, we put a lot into it. And then one night at dinner, we were playing a game that I made up called tell me something you've never told me. And I'll tell you stuff I've never told you. Uh, because at that point, none of it mattered anymore. Whatever we right. told each other, it was the past. So I tell her mine, we laugh. And then she tells me hers, which is when she was 24 years old, she married my father. Never being one of the popular kids, she was nervous to have a wedding shower thrown in her honor. Her maid of honor said, don't you worry about it. Everything will be fine. We cut to the day of the shower and my mother, my grandmother, and that roommate sat in this sparsely decorated room for over an hour and no one showed up. So many years later, she confesses to me that that story and then says one of her biggest fears is that no one ever comes to her party. So this now became a huge, it went from a want to a need. I needed to give her this party. We needed to pull this off. So we get to uh, June 24th, 2006, and the party arrives and everyone who said they were going to be there had shown up. And when she walked in or when she was wheeled into this room, 125 people from her life jumped to their feet and she walked into her first and last standing ovation. The end of this party, this party was an amazing event. I put on uh, I put on a, a show, a tribute, and I hired, uh, I hired, I asked some friends of mine from Chicago Second City uh, to come down and help me, uh, including, if you know, uh, TJ Jagodowski, uh, Lance Barber, and Mark Warzeka all came to help me with this. And it was an amazing night. At the end of this party, my mother gestures for me to come over to her. She beckons for me to lean down, 
and she kisses me on the cheek and she says, thank you, Kevin. This was so much better than my wedding shower. To which I responded, you're very welcome, but that wasn't hard to beat. But that right there, that five second moment in time where she beckoned for me to lean down, kiss me on the cheek and thanked me for this party because it was better than her wedding shower, blew my mind emotionally. I was just overwhelmed. Oh, I'm getting it right now. Overwhelmed with emotion from it. So that right there is a very important moment in my life because I fulfilled what I set out to do. And then eight days later, she died. So this was getting it in under the wire. So for you to get that same emotional resonance that I did, everything else in this story has to lead to that. So that unlocked storytelling for me or made it a little bit easier is that I'm just looking for moments. And then from there, I write around that as opposed to what's my story. It's looking for those moments all right. the time because that's the stuff that gets people. Yeah. Is moments that a human being either gets what they want or finds something different. They thought they wanted this, but they get something else that's even better or different. They redeem themselves, something that just gets the heart elevated. It's just so beautiful. Just so beautiful. And storytelling is such an ancient tradition. I mean, when we think about all the myths and legends we hear about those were passed down before they were using paper that and i i'm very i feel very touched by what you just shared that i can i can picture it i can see it and that's the beauty of it i mean i my visualization is nothing like what it probably looked like but i form these pictures in my head of those people and and her yes down i mean it's just so amazing really because it also, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but it goes exactly in the th same thing with improv, in that in improv, at the very beginning, you must establish where you are, who you are, and what you're doing, because then the audience can start to visualize and go on this make-believe journey with you because they have a base. Same with storytelling, that if I describe like, yeah, my mom walked, I walked in this room and we, uh, like all these people were there, it was great. Who cares? But if I say, we walked, as we stood in front of the doors of ballroom A, I was so nervous that we had finally pulled this off and we were about to make it into this party. I turned to my mother, I grabbed her hand. She gave my hand a reassuring squeeze. I said to her, here we go. And then I put my hands on the doors and then fueled by only adrenaline and a couple watered down vodka cranberries, I pushed the door open, announced, ladies and gentlemen, Patty McGeehan, and the place went wild. Everyone jumped to their feet, and it was her first and last standing ovation. So the difference in those two things is now you have something that you can visualize and go on that journey with me, and you'll picture it even though what you picture will not be correct, but it will be enough for your brain to be satisfied with what you just heard. Beautiful. Excuse me. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I... Uh, and um, let me just take a pause for a second. Of course. Um, I'm going to be sharing some links for people to see your work. And one of the stories I really enjoyed was the I forgot my phone story. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And uh, why don't you tell that one a little bit, if you don't mind? Uh, Sure, that's all. Okay. 
So this goes back into the whole thing. This was a big teaching moment for me of just realizing that just a very simple moment can be very impactful. In that one Sunday morning, I always taught the same class at noon for nine years. And one of the things I would do every Sunday morning is I would go to the same coffee bean by my place and I would treat myself to a little vanilla latte. And I look forward to it every week. And every time I was there, I would do what everyone does when they're standing in line, just scroll mindlessly through my phone. On this particular Sunday, I forgot my phone in my car and I wasn't going to go back and get it. So I just was forced to observe the world around me. And to give a little bit of context, when my mother first got sick, she, she had cancer. So of course she had to go through radiation and chemo. And one day uh, she called me one night during this process and she told me a story of what happened to her that day, which was she was sitting in the public library and she was actually reading about the specific type of cancer that she had. And she was just having a moment. She is bald at this point, and she has the telltale kerchief on her head and no eyebrows. So she is reading this and just trying to quietly have this moment to herself as she is crying. A stranger approaches her, touches her shoulder, and unprompted said, everything's going to be okay. My mother, and rather indignantly, just because she did not understand why this stranger was saying it, turned to the stranger and said, how could you possibly know? To which the stranger responded, because I'm okay. And I used to have your exact same haircut. And from there, she told me that story. And my mother on the phone that night told me just how much that affected her and how it was such a wonderful thing to have someone listen to her because she and that stranger then now started talking about everything they had gone through. And it was such an amazing moment for her. So she passed it on to me and I never forgot it as evidenced by the fact that 19 years later, I am in the coffee bean standing in line, phoneless, and I'm paying attention to the world around me. And I see this woman talking to the barista. And this woman is also bald and has the telltale kerchief on her head. And the thing she is saying to the barista is, oh, she was saying that, uh, she had a chemo appointment that day and that she was very nervous because she thought it was going to be painful. And then she said, I just got to take things day by day, you know, like that song. And then, oh, uh, oh dear Lord, three things. Are, okay. So at this point, the barista slammed, doesn't know, doesn't really engage with her. But, and I see this woman and she looks kind of sad and by herself because she was just trying to communicate with someone, but they did not have time to do it. And I was just completely in this moment, I decided to engage. And I said, and because I knew that song, because it's from the musical Godspell, and I worked crew for Godspell in college, I'd heard that song 2,000 times. Tom Eskett or two others. Uh, so I say to her, I finish her lyric and I say, oh, dear Lord, three things I pray. And she goes, yeah, that song. And I said, yeah, I worked that in college. To which she then started talking to me and it just opened up the sluice gates where she just started telling me that she was going to a radiation treatment. She thought it was going to be painful. Uh, she was having a lot of trouble with her family because her alcoholic brother was poisoning her against all of her family. And her mom was saying these mean things. And as I'm standing there, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And then suddenly this woman got softer and she started talking about her daughter and how much she loved her daughter 
and how the night before they had done this thing they used to do when she was a little girl where they would cuddle up on the couch and they'd watch a movie and they called it Cuddle Bunny, Cuddle Bunny. And to see this woman saying this and the way her face just softened was so very pretty. At the end of this conversation, after about, say about eight minutes, I say to her, I do have to go. I have to go to work, but it was a pleasure talking to you. And then right as I'm about to leave, she touches my arm and she goes, thank you. Just saying that stuff out loud made me feel so much better. To which I responded, you're very welcome. And I know exactly what you mean because my mother used to have your exact same haircut. And I walked out to my car and I was just bawling. And then I picked up my phone and I had absolutely, and I turned it off because I had no interest in scrolling because I had just had an amazing moment with a human being, period. More than anything else, people need to be listened to and heard. Yes, More yes. anything else, so important. Yeah. Well, you've been touching my soul today, Kevin, deep down tell me a little bit about what you're up to now do you teach what are you what are you doing what's in your wheelhouse as they say uh i am now getting back into it i took a little bit of a hiatus and i did something that it seems like it might be too much to go into at this point but i had what i keep going okay uh in november of 2020 and this is a big a very truncated version of this in November of 2020, I had a nervous breakdown. It was bad and it was by myself, but it was a moment where I had the realization of, I have to get help. There's no way around this. So I go to my then neuroscientist girlfriend and say, I'm in so much pain, will you please help me? She says, yes. And she put me on a path that I would have never gone on had I not had a neuroscientist guiding me to which she said, let's work this from the inside out. So we went and I got a SPECT brain scan, a single photon emission computed tomography brain scan, where they're able to tell uh, what parts of the brain are working well, what parts are not working well enough, and what parts are working too hard. And from there, they were able to officially ascertain that uh, I have depression, anxiety, ADHD, and PTSD things that I always kind of assumed, but never had a diagnosis because I would always use it as a punchline. Like, oh, I, of course I'm depressed. I'm incredibly creative. So I would just kind of throw that around like willy nilly. But now that I have an actual diagnosis and I can see pictures on a page of my brain where the exact parts are being afflicted. Now I had this enemy I could conquer as opposed to just, well, I guess get the blues a lot. But now I could actually fix my thalamus and get my thalamus normalized as well as the neurotransmitters around it. So from there, I went into 283 hours of group therapy where I worked on all the things that led to me having all of this stuff in my head. So I was able to really throw myself into this and solve problems that I had had my entire life that I was able to just function with. And no one would be the wiser of the turmoil going on in my head because outwardly I could be vastly different than that. So this was me dealing with my turmoil. And at the end of it, I emerged a very different person. Different in that when you get the iOS update on your phone, that it's still your phone, 
but it's a little different. The fonts are different. The font, the times in a different font, there's different navigation. And at first you're like, what is this? I don't know how to work this. But then after a day, it's like, oh, this is so much better. I can't believe I lived with the old way so, for so long. That's how I feel. I got an update and it fixed a lot of the bugs. So as you say, what am I doing now? So this is me re-emerging after awesome. that time period. Awesome. And it is a whole new lens that I'm looking through the world, looking at the world through. So I'm getting back into teaching, storytelling again. Uh, as, as soon as this week, early next, I'm going to start doing these drop-ins where I'm just going to announce that I will be online in perpetuity from Tuesdays from 2 to 5 and Thursdays from 6 to 10. I will be there and you can come and do a drop-in. So I'm just going to have that where I'm just going to be those will be my office hours every week that anybody can come and do this drop in for a nominal cost. And it'll just, that's where I'll be every week. So that's the new thing I'm thinking about doing starting this week. Oh, it sounds great. I'll drop in. Perfect. Great. <laughs> you got one, this, one person. <laughs> yeah. Great. Cause then you just, cause the thing I want to do is like, I want to help people kind of understand this art form and get a grasp on it beyond just I'm talking about what happened, but how you're affected by it as well as I'll help people craft whatever they're working on. So oh, it'll wonderful. be just kind of an all-inclusive thing. Oh, that sounds great. I've got a bunch of stories already. Great, fantastic. <laughs> so um, in the, uh, uh, in my, on my website, we're gonna post links to all of these exciting things. And um, I am so grateful that I discovered you and that you were able to spend this time with me today. I'm so glad we had this time together. And uh, you're amazing. I'll mop up the spotlight. <laughs> and and also, uh, what a testament to therapy that does work. Therapy, spending in the time, spending in the work, because most people have a trauma history they don't even know about. Um, that was me. Affecting them. Yeah, don't even know about it. Um, and then bring in the last couple of years and the anxiety it's caused, plus other things that you've mentioned. So uh, I've, I've just enjoyed this so much. I feel like I was transported into a magical place where uh, sad things happen, but good things happen as well. So uh, go ahead. Are you, oh, I want to ask you, are you doing any more improv at all? Are you taking any classes or going to do any improv kind of things anymore? Uh, the only thing I am doing is, I'm assuming you know the name Jamie Moyer? Yes. Yes. So Jamie teaches a drop-in. So for uh, for many years, she and I were the drop-in teachers at Second City Hollywood, and she would do Wednesdays and I would do Sundays, and we just did that for a decade plus. And now she's doing it at the Glendale Room in Glendale. And if she's ever out of town, I have now turned into her permanent sub. Cool. So I do that maybe once or twice a month. And for me. I love improv and it was such a wonderful part of my life. However, the thing that brings me the most joy is doing stories on stage. So for me, it's more, it's kind of a fun vacation to go teach it because I've taught it for so long. And also it keeps me sharp, which is the thing I just want to make sure that I keep. Yes. I want to keep the sword sharp. Yes. So, we, we need to keep going into that book of cultural references indexes. Yes. Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, yeah, you'll dull. I don't want to dull out the tools. I heard this great quote 
that, oh my gosh, I'm trying to think of who said it right now. I can't remember who said it, but it was a quote from, I think, George Bernard Shaw. It was about that I've got this light, I've got this flame that's going, you know, for my life right now. And I want to keep that flame going until the very end. Yes. Uh, so uh, thank you again. And um, I'll be seeing you again, I'm sure. Great. Uh, wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.